Hello, Dive Down Nation. Shane here with a little pre-roll for everyone. Be sure to catch our own Zach doing coverage on the Modern Streamers League this coming Wednesday, August 28th at 8 p.m. Eastern. Learn more about the league at modernstreamersleague.com and watch on twitch.tv slash modernstreamersleague. Now on to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Dive Down, Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike. Focus on latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name's Zach, living here in Chicago. We have our first caller for the night on the line. Oh, hold on, it's, it's from Denver, Colorado. This is Dive Down Nation. Who am I speaking to right now? Long-time listener, first-time caller. This is Shane Beeps. Oh, Sh- Shane Beeps. Yeah, yeah, you've written in uh, actually a few times before. You're, uh, you're playing uh, the Spooky Boys right now, right? I wish. I can't wait to play Blue White Spirits again. Shane, great talk to you as always. <laughs> Take care. Love your show. <laughs> I also understand that two can be as bad as one. So here to offer their theorems and proofs, we have the mathematician himself, Dave Harberger. Uh, I'm not a licensed mathologist, but I'm going to do my best this episode. Yeah, it's, uh, it's all like homeopathy, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I have some <laughs> tiny spheres I'd like you to take to get better at math. <laughs> you know, if you distill it more, it becomes more effective. Yeah, yeah. It remembers the memory of what it had, right? So this week is an episode that is really dedicated in part to a certain Dutch PhD that we just can't get enough of, Dr. Frank Garsten. We're talking about the continuation of Hogak Summer at GP Birmingham in the breakdown. Second, we're going to be talking about uh, some numbers and some uh, really equations and percentages you need to know to get better at modern in our dive down. And then we're going to wrap up with a listener question that may or may not be from Frank Karsten. So this week, clearly I am talking where I normally wouldn't. That is because our own Stanislav is out. We wish him well. He'll be back next week. He's a jet ski boy this week. He is making big waves in more than one way. So moving on, housekeeping. We want to thank Kato for joining our Patreon, and thank you to Mark S., Rick V., and Justin P. for upping their support. We really appreciate it. Thank you to Sheepdog, Dr. Katz, and Kyle Faust for their five-star reviews on Apple Podcast. Those reviews really help us get the word out and help people see our podcast, so we really appreciate it. We got a review from Dr. Katz? Yeah, Dr. Katz amazing. posted. He's posted on Reddit a few times oh, to us, really? too, so I appreciate the good doctor. Do you think it's the actual Dr. Katz? As quickly as ever. If Jonathan Katz came on in Squiggle Vision and liked our show, man, that would mean the world to me. I'm just going to assume he did. Amazing. And we're really excited to announce our custom tokens are nearing their final form. Uh, Just a few more touches on the cards, and we're going to be getting them printed. You can see the art on our Patreon feed and our Twitter account, which is at The Dive Down. Um, I really think I can speak for all of us at the pod when I say how excited we are to share these with everyone. Uh, We worked with an artist that Dave and I have known for a long time, Benjamin Dewey. He's an artist and an author. His works include Beast of Burden, The Autumn Lands, The Tragedy Series, and Fair Lady. He's really stepped up and did some awesome work for us on these, and they're going to be dope when they're done. Absolutely. We'll be sure to include a, a link to our Twitter post in the show notes as well. So if you would like some fun Dive Down Creature Tokens of your own, consider joining our Patreon. They're one of the cool perks you get along with some fun pins and stickers and access to the group chat as well. And that's patreon.com slash thedivedown. Yeah, don't sleep on this if you want to see a comic book version of me shirtless as the largest 1-1 you've ever seen in your life. 
Yeah, Dave has definitely been lifting. Ripped, beautiful, handsome, strong. Bearded. Yeah, sure. Well, I think all those are really synonyms, though, right? That's true. Lightning-y, rocky. <laughs> it is me, both lightning and rocky. I'm the rock lightning flame elemental. <laughs> so, with all that being said, let's go ahead and check in in the tournament across the pond. Shane, what did GP Birmingham have in store for us? So, we had a modern GP over in Birmingham this week. Um, interesting stuff happened. Some not so not not so happy stuff happened with our day one to day two conversion rates, which we're gonna gonna get into in a second. And we also had really good text coverage uh, and Twitter coverage this weekend. So honestly, if we're stuck with only this web and social media coverage, this was a really good version of that. Um, so they must listen to our podcast, reacted really quickly uh, to what we were saying last week. Um, we had day two meta analysis really quickly at the end of day one, which was earlier than any of us probably expected. We got a full day one analysis. We could see what people registered, make some, and then eventually make some guesses and conclusions about conversion rates, things like that. Absolutely. Do the way we record where it's on a Monday night, typically. Sometimes getting tournament results together for the notes can be a little bit of a last minute thing. But for this one, it was amazing how quickly the results were up and we were able to add them and start having thoughts about them. So no video coverage, but I was really impressed, like Shane said, with the speed of the text coverage. Yeah. I mean, it was more descriptive. There was more of it. It was more fun. They got a chance to use the data to put out some statistics in almost real time. So it kind of felt like you were getting a commentary track when you were watching Channel Fireball's Twitter feed go by. And so if this is what we're going to get from GPs, text only, then uh, I think this is a level where it's actually engaging content to follow during the day. I totally agree. So that being said, maybe we can take a look at the day one meta share for what Dex had over 5%. So you know him, you hate him. You want him banned. It's Hogak, 10.3% leading the pack. That is an awful lot. One Over one out of 10 decks for Hogak. Do we know how many people registered for their, this GP day one? Yeah, so I've seen two different numbers. I think there was like 980-ish people registered, but then the stats we have are like in the 900 and teens. So maybe that you know didn't account for like no-shows or things like that, but I've seen some different numbers about day one attendance. So it's between 900 and 1,000, though, you think? Yes. Okay. Yes. So 100 Hogax. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, 90 Hogax showed up. Yeah, I love that. Uh, there's that cover of that song by that German band, right? Yeah. yeah. Nine and nine zig Hogak balloons. <laughs> Necropolis. <laughs> so yeah, that's a lot. And then... Uh, in second place for day one, a deck that might shock you, Jund, at almost 8%. I'm just shocked that there's that many people out there of $2,000 to, <laughs> to drop on a deck, or as it's known in Birmingham, about 1100 quid. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, this, this actually doesn't surprise me, Zach. I mean, I think, as we talked about a couple weeks ago with Ross, is that people love playing mid-range strategies where they can feel like they have agency and Jund is probably more powerful than it has been in years. So people want to sleeve it up and they want to bring it in their deck boxes to these tournaments. Absolutely. Right behind that, we have Tron with about 7.5%. And this is the mono green edition. Yeah, coming directly to attack the deck before it right. Jund. <laughs> where there's a lot of Jund, you can always play a lot of Tron. Ain't that the truth? Then we have Blue Eye Control, which has been putting up pretty consistent high-level results lately at about 6%. Then we have Burn, also about 6%. And then finally, Is It Phoenix at about 55 
I'm still honestly a little bit surprised to see is it Phoenix at 5.5 with mono red Phoenix around four behind it because we have been seeing a good amount of mono red Phoenix. But I guess if you combine it with mono red prowess, it gets up to about 6%, which is eclipsing is it Phoenix. Although they aren't the same deck, but they do operate in much the same fashion. Yeah, I mean they're they're. I personally think they're still very very close to being the same the same deck after playing both of them. Well, the, the thing that was the biggest surprise to me was one of the stats that was shared um, out over Twitter was day one win loss percentages from three different decks that did notably well. The first one that was shared out on the channel Fireball Twitter feed was Hogak went three hundred and two thirty one with a 56.5% win percentage. Seems good. Pretty good. Yeah, pretty okay. Seems pretty okay, but guess what? There were even better ones or even as gooder ones because the other one that was in the same bracket was Mono Red Phoenix at 137 and 106 with 56.4% win percentage. And then finally, Urza Thopterasword at 108 and 65 for a 62.4% win percentage. Yeah, yo, we cannot bang this drum any harder, which is if you want to play Urza Thopter Sword, you better have all the pieces or buy them quickly because this deck keeps putting up, you know, high 50s, low 60s percentage win rates and it's uh, it's powerful. As I've mentioned before on this very podcast, I thought this deck was among the best decks in the format before it had Urza. And now that it has Urza, it is just Oh, it's so good. I've played against it many times in my LGS, and let me tell you how I lose every single gosh darn time. Yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see if, like, Ross's sort of soft prediction when we talked to him a couple of weeks ago about um, Urza, once Hogak goes, Urza losing a deck that it can kind of, like, prey on lessens the the win percentage of Urza at all, but it does seem like a super powerful deck, and, you know, Urza itself as a card is just kind of nuts, so... So at the end of day one, when the smoke cleared, there were three 9-0 decks. And maybe they were what we expected. At least one of them was not what I was expecting. And that is Rory Keir Smith on Marty Shadow was 9-0 at the end of day one. Peter Strouch on Hogak and Gavin Thacker on Eldrazi Tron. Those are all good decks. Those are all what I would call tier one decks, right? I mean, Mardu Shadow is a little out of left field, yeah. but no one's doubting the, the power of it. Well, I mean, I think that Shadow's been been definitely on the decline for a number of months. And so I think that um, a lot of people, you know, I've seen a lot of people on on social media kind of who were known Shadow players saying at different points at the time a couple a month ago or so or six weeks ago saying, well, it's time for me to put down my deck and go on and learn something else. And so it's, inter- it's interesting to see this kind of new um build popping up a little bit and the thing that's the most interesting is that it's not really a mardu deck it's kind of a mardu deck it's really it's really orzov shadow which is is kind of i think a more apt name for it but anyway we'll get to talk about it a little bit more later i'm sure we'll be hearing from Timur battle reach's lawyer shortly yeah i mean it's not even running lightning bolt is it Mm-mm. yeah so it's, it's just not running it's just running Timur battle rage and um i believe just maybe a Coligan's command, although I will go look up the deck list now while we talk about day two. Nothing better than hearing <laughs> deck searches in real time on a podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, you didn't have to call attention to it. <laughs> so we'll move on to day two now. And day two is cool because it, we have the, the metagame breakdown of day two, and we also know how many players played in day two, so that it gives us a really easy way to get deck counts, which then when we compare it with day one, 
gives us some kind of conversion rates or at least conversion counts. So um, I'm just going to read down every deck that made up over 3% of the field on day one, and then how many copies there were in day two. So 106 kind of Hogak-based decks down to 40. Jun went from 70 to 9. Green Tron went from 66 to 12. Blue-White Control, 56 to 7. Burn, 54 to 12. Is it Phoenix, 48 to 9. Humans, 37 down to 5. Mono Red Phoenix, 37 to 10. Eldrazi Tron, 32 to 7. And Wurza, 27, but still kept 10. Cool. So first we saw Hogak gets around like this 40% conversion rate. That's really wild. That's insane. Yeah. Right. And also Hogak was about 22% of the day two meta at GB Birmingham. So 40% conversion rate and 20% of the day two meta. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, but Wurza was still like a 37% conversion rate. Yeah. Also unreal. So pretty wild, but yeah, 21.9% day two metagame. This is you know where we see decks that are somewhat unhealthy. I mean, what's the kind of thing we saw at peak? Is it Phoenix? But also Ross made a really interesting point a few weeks ago when we talked to him where he was like, this is the point where kind of the Phoenix decks had to modify their build in order to can- like you know avoid being cannibalized in the metagame. And so they were playing things like main deck surgical extractions um, to counter the, the existence of other Is it Phoenix decks in the metagame that compromise their win percentage against deck like decks like humans but we don't see that happening with Hogak. Hogak is a known entity. We you know, we see tons and tons of copies of Leyland of the Void, but yet it still puts up insane results. Right. And people online and in other community spaces can talk about how, oh, a deck's really good because people aren't preparing for it. People aren't having the right cards. But we've seen consistently Leyland of the Void be the most played card. We did a whole episode about it. We've seen Surgical Extraction be a really highly played card. And we've seen all this graveyard hate be run main and still Hogak reign supreme. Yeah. So let's get into this top eight after all of the day two shook out. So we'll start with uh, the top finisher, Rory Kier Smith on Mardu Death Shadow. Second place, Simon Nielsen on, on Hogak. Abdullah Al Awadi on Wurza. Jamin Jauf on Hogak. Stan Splinter, rad name, on Hardened Scales. Lucas uh, Rodriguez on Burn. Peter Strauch on hold at the third copy of Hogak, and Borja Munoz on blue-white control. So if you take away the Hogaks, I think this is a healthy meta. I think all the other decks are perfectly fine and cromulent, and I don't hate seeing them. But man, three Hogak decks. And there's some differences between them, but not really. I mean, it's just it's just consistent with what we've we've seen and heard over the last couple of months, which is or last six weeks or so, which is that Hogak's always there. Hogak's about 35% of, of top eights or whatever. Like it's just it's continuing to kill it. So why don't we talk about some of the other decks? Yeah, this Mario Death Shadow deck, we've been talking about it kind of a little bit, mentioned wanting to test it. You gave it a run the other week, Dave. Let's talk about this. So it's Pretty stock-ish, right? Well, <clears throat> let's just talk about what is in the Mardu Death Shadow deck in case people didn't listen last week or don't remember. So the thing that Mardu, the new Death Shadows builds are kind of built around, and the Mardu Death Shadows build is particularly built around, is the kind of synergy between Death Shadow, Ranger Captain of Eos, and then a little bit of Unearth, okay? Now, Unearth is not a key, super key card in it, but it 
it does let you do some pretty wild things where you can bring up a ranger captain or cast a ranger captain, go get a death shadow, sacrifice the ranger captain for its disruption ability, then unearth to bring it back and then get another death shadow. Yeah, this is something that Stan has talked about in the podcast before. He asked why a card like Lightning Skelemental wouldn't fit into a deck like this. And it's because the card in Earth isn't a part of the engine of the deck. It's just extra value and utility like you were talking about. So the rest of the cards in this deck are kind of the typical enablers that you see in a Death Shadow deck, right? So you have your Street Wraiths that help you get through your deck faster and reduce your life total at the same time. You got four Mishra's Bauble that are kind of there for a similar reason to make your deck smaller. They also have Thoughtseize and Inquisition and Kozilek. So you have kind of like your normal black disruption package. The things that are kind of twisty about the Mardu deck are, number one, it runs four Path to Exile, which I think in this metagame is particularly good to help get rid of Hogak, of course, and also help get rid of other resilient threats. Like it helps you, in addition to Fatal Push, helps you get rid of something like a, a Thing in the Ice if you run across some, one of those, or Path to Exile can also help you get rid of Phoenixes. Tons of threats like that, right? So it is kind of this interesting indication that maybe Path to Exile is just very, very good in the metagame right now, and this is a deck that has a chance to kind of take advantage of that. The other thing that's really interesting about this deck and the card that you don't expect to see is that it's running a full playset of Tide Hollow Scholars, which I think to a lot of people is kind of like, oh my gosh, what is this Eldrazi and Taxes card doing stuck into this deck that's usually so elegant? Yeah, if you know, you're not super familiar, Tide Hollow Scholar is a white-black for a 2-2, just a bear. But when it comes into play, your opponent reveals their hand, and you get to take a non-land card from it, and then you exile it. And then if Tide Hollow Scholar leaves play, then you return that card to its owner's hand. So it's kind of like a Kitesail Freebooter, right? Pretty much. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's templated in such a way where if you can exile it in response to the ETB trigger, they don't ever get the card back. And that's where I saw it previously used in like the Eldrazi Taxes, where you can play it, Eldrazi Displacer it, and exile cards in their hand. So it's interesting to see it used in just a straight-up disruption plan and to not have to worry about any tricks or things like that. Yeah. And so the thing that this really does is it pushes the number of discard disruption spells that that the, this Mardu, quote-unquote Mardu Death Shadow deck has main to 10 from what's usually 6 or 7 in kind of like the Grixis deck, right? So you have this massive hand disruption package where you're basically you know, guaranteed to kind of take a couple of cards from your opponent every game. Uh, and then the last thing that this has in it that's kind of a surprise, not really a surprise, but um, there's Teamer, Teamer Battle Rage, of course, is the, the part that makes it Mardu. So you have those kind of bursty wins that the Grixis Shadow deck had at the end that the Jun Shadow deck was sort of well known for. And then um, the last couple of cards that are kind of surprising or really important as kind of a single package are Hex Parasites and Four Silent Clearing. Yeah, Hex Parasite is a wild card. It definitely took a while for people to sort of, I think, want to add this to the deck. And I think Ranger Captain is what I think really allows this because you can tutor it up as a one casting cost creature. Yeah, although I will say in my test with this deck, like the time that I took it for a spin, I was left being really surprised, kind of trying to figure out why people hadn't hit on Hex Parasite as a piece of tech much earlier in Shadow, because I don't know if you remember, but one of the builds that was really popular with Shadow for a while was the Jun Traverse one, where you had a card that was similar to Ranger Captain's Tutor effect, at least. And, you know, I, I remember playing that version of the deck at different points in time and just being like, man, I wish I had something more interesting to tutor up with, with 
traverse the Ulenwald than just another Tarmogoyf or just another Death Shadow. And having a Hex Parasite as part of that package would have been amazing because let me tell you something, friends. If you've never played a Death Shadow deck before and felt what it's like to not really be able to control your life total to be as aggressive as you want, Hex Parasite solves that problem for you like full stop. Absolutely. I do wonder if the continued ubiquitousness of Planeswalkers helps. Obviously, War of the Spark injected a ton. So I wonder if just the sheer amount of them that are now in modern and very playable makes this just extra playable. Oh, sure. I mean, and again, if you don't know this card, this lets you dump life to remove up to X counters, and you don't have to have any counters to remove. So it also, it pumps Hex Parasite if there are counters, but you can just pay your life. Right. So Hex Parasite is a one colorless card. It's a one, one, and it has an activated ability that is X and black Phyrexian mana that says remove up to X counters from target permanent for each counter removed this way. Hex Parasite gets plus one plus O until end of turn. So what you do with this, honestly, is you go and tutor, tutor this up when you have a death shadow in play and you take your life down as far as you are possibly um, possibly comfortable for free and then swing in or you swing in during combat like that. And then you have team or battle rage active so, so much earlier than you're kind of, than I was used to on the Jun builds that I played at different points in time in this deck. The one other thing that's super interesting is that silent clearing actually f performs a similar kind of, goal to this like having a good pain land is actually pretty good like the, the canopy land of course um is actually really good in this deck to be able to help you take your life total down to where you, exactly where you want it to be too absolutely so yeah shouts out to rory Kier smith for taking it down with mardu death shadow yeah and i just want to say too that i um you know there's a player on twitter who's well who's kind of well known in the shadow community there's a bunch of players who i happen to follow or happen to see who are, have been talking about this deck recently so it's been really cool to see them do that and if you want to read about playing this deck the player who um, I was kind of inspired me to try the deck a couple weeks ago, Michael Rapp, has a, just posted an article on Hipsters of the Coast that's a kind of a play guide to Mardu Death Shadow. He won an MCQ with it a couple of weeks ago. So worth checking it out, and uh, shout out to Rapacious One. Yeah, absolutely. Moving on to the second place, like we mentioned, it was the Hogak the first out of three. This one was running a single Crypt Breaker, but that just feels like someone's personal flair. Yeah, worth noting that Simon Nielsen won uh, GP Birmingham last year, and so he was in the finals defending that title of the same the same GP and almost got there. Wow, there you go. And the Wurza deck we mentioned seemed pretty stock. I, you know, I know there are a few different ways you can customize that or work with it, but the core seemed pretty similar to what we've seen around lately. On the Hogak deck that came in fourth, there was the Seder Wayfinder Glowspar Shaman package. Once again, that's pretty stock. You can do that or the crabs. For the Hardened Scales in fifth, stockless once again, nothing too fancy there. They was running some of the Horizon, the Canopy lands, but that is, you know, the choice du jour these days. We have the Burn in six was the six Horizon lands, which seemed just like six Horizon lands are what Burn is doing these days. Yeah, I still see four plenty because i've been looking at burn lists lately but i think if you really want to be aggressive and churn through the deck you can try to run six i don't know if i would in a, an aggressive metagame like we are right now because that does you know it does get at your life total but you know if you really want to be able to cycle through them then it might prove valuable right so hogak the third long may his reign be this one was the troll build running lolith troll once again pretty stock there's a few choices you can make like that that you can make your own hogak 
And then finally, the blue-eyed control list in eighth was actually pretty interesting. They had eight total walkers main and a very healthy amount of one-ofs. So this really looks like a list that someone has spent a lot of time sleeping up cards, taking cards in and out of the deck, and they decided exactly what they wanted their 75 to be. So congrats to this player on living their truth. Yeah, I don't think blue-white control makes a top eight without being really tuned for a, a metagame, and hopefully the metagame that they're expecting. Right, yeah, we definitely talked about that in our blue-white control episode as well, where it's a good deck, but it's not a deck you just bring blind. You need to know what to expect, what little hate cards you need, like... Do you want one attentive sphere, as Borgia did, or do you want two, depending on the meta you're facing? Things like that. So, now that we went to the top eight and talked about choices, what do you guys think? What's going on? Are we just counting down the hours till Hogak is finally gone? Any chance that Hogak doesn't get banned? Maybe it's Stitcher Supplier? You know, we're heading into heading into Grand Prix Vegas uh, this weekend. We've got one more modern Grand Prix before the banned and restricted announcement on the 26th happens. When people hear this episode, it's going to be Friday at the earliest. So, you know, there's only might only be a couple of days of Hogak left. I don't know if you guys have any parting thoughts, if you think it's going to happen for sure, or uh, what do we think? It's got to go. I mean, the only other option would be enabler cards, and then they would have to just avoid printing any enabling type cards, like Lot the Troll, like Glowspore Shaman, like Stitcher's Supplier, and they're not going to live in a world where they can't have any card into the format that like, you know, discards cards out of your, or puts cards from the top of your library into the graveyard or anything like that. It, it's, bro- it's broken on two forms of cheating mana. It's just, it's going to go. Yeah. I think that it's like Stan has mentioned, it's a foregone conclusion that Hogak is going to be banned. I obviously agree. I think all of us think that as well. I would not be shocked to see other cards banned. I am someone who likes cards to be banned. I like when they, take away powerful things. I I know I might be alone in that. We'll see. Um, I think that obviously Modern Horizons shook up the format a lot and Hogak needs to go, but we'll see if they think that anything else is on the precipice of danger as well. Wow, that would be wild if there was another card that they decided they wanted to get rid of from Modern Horizons. That would be just too much. Yeah, so we'll see. So with that being said, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about some modern statistics and numbers to know to up your game as a casual spike. Stay with us. And we're back. And guess what, everybody? Class is in session once again. Oh, man. Professor Dave. I wish. a hall pass. Yeah. My mom told me not to learn math from the guy at the card shop, but here I am. He's at my school. Sorry. I'm I'm bringing out the chair just like last week. I'm flipping it around backwards for us to sit down. And a Riker stand over it. Exactly. <laughs> have a little have a little rap here about um, statistics and all those kind of things. So so we wanted to we've been wanting to do an episode like this for a long time to just sit down and talk about uh, some of our thoughts about using mathematics and probability in uh, trying to improve and assess our gameplay as Magic players. Um, I think it's it's really interesting because you know. Math, I think, from most people in this sense, or lots of people, kind of just maybe the eyes glaze over or they get kind of disinterested or, you know, it can be really frustrating to think about, you know, math is difficult, it requires precision and, and um, you know, thinking about putting that into your hobby can feel like kind of a drag. But um, I think it's a good thing to just keep in mind that 
you know, this is a game of, that has a lot of variance in it. And there's tons and tons of writing and theory and mathematics around the ideas of evaluating, anticipating, and using probability to make decisions. And I think that's what the, the point is really is here. In the kind of ma uh, magic slash limited resources viewpoint on playing Magic the Gathering, there is this kind of aspect of trying to find all the tools that are available to improve your game. And, and math is one of those tools. For sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is one of the episodes that when when we first started this podcast and our like kind of initial, what would we want to do? This is one of the things that I was like, I want to talk about how to compute things, how to use math to to think about your decisions. And I think that as we went through and made this episode, we we got to those, but we also got just kind of a lot of like interesting things to keep in your back pocket, things to remember, ways to think about, you know, your life totals, your keeper mold decisions. I think that it's it's a lot of interesting numbers, a lot of interesting things that we go through and kind of refresh ourselves about. Without giving away too much, I definitely went into this episode, you know, where you're brainstorming and talking about it very hesitant and pretty not into the idea of a math episode, but working on these notes and seeing the ideas that Shane and Dave have had and the things they've had to talk about, I've really come around and think that a lot of this is really applicable to my my magic career and what I want to do. Yeah. And I think that the big thing is that math gives us a chance to look under the hood of how the game that we love works. And also it can give us some insight into how the game is made because you can start to see these patterns emerge where certain things are only X percent likely to happen. And the moment they become more than that or above a certain threshold is when all of a sudden you feel that kind of conversation start to get really kind of nervous around whether a card is too good or not. So for example, you know, this whole discussion right now that we just had a mini version of about is, is Hogak too good? Is it going to be banned? Of course, it's going to be banned at this point. You know, there's, there's lots of discussion around like, well, is it just too consistent at powering out this huge creature? And all of that boils down to probability, right? How, how often does it do it? Um, is that above a threshold that we find acceptable uh, for someone to take advantage of in the game? Yeah. There's a super interesting comparison we'll do later too with kind of a deck from the past that powered out big creatures and how often that happened and then how often in comparison Hogak does. Exactly. So magic is really complicated and math is really complicated, right? No, they're both super simple. <laughs> That's why everyone I know has a PhD in math. Right. You just want to kind of soak it up every time you go to Burger King with your friend. <laughs> Tell me about the quadratic equation again. <laughs> Dreamily. <laughs> that was ninth grade. Move on. So what we're going to try to do is give you some tools to kind of help boil down different aspects of magic into equations or sort of frameworks that you can think about. Heuristics. The, yeah, heuristics a little bit, but these are all number heuristics. So I, sure. I'm not sure what those are. And equations, maybe. Will. But I think that the – so the exercise of breaking down these situations can be really illuminating, but it can also be daunting, right? So I think that when people get turned off by the idea of math or trying to apply kind of rational thinking to the, a game like Magic, they kind of go, well, there's just too many variables for us to really know. There's two – you know, games of chance are just games of chance, and that's just kind of all that it is. But, you know – if you get focused on the enormity of all these different variables, you'll probably miss out on the idea that you can 
reduce a lot of situations that you're into to one fact that you need to keep in mind and then make a decision based on that fact or a combination of a few facts. Definitely less than kind of everything you can think of. There's a way to prioritize and kind of narrow things down. Absolutely. And I think this is really just building upon what a lot of Magic players already do and have, where you have these non-math heuristics, where it's, oh, when I'm playing Jund, I don't want these cards. I'm trying to stop them from doing this and be on top of this. But those aren't backed by math or numbers. It's backed by what you've experienced. So this is a way to take those things and actually apply, you know, real solid numbers to them and have better heuristics that are backed by logic and facts as opposed to your experiences. So I think there are two reasons that people that are a little worried about math should consider listening to this episode kind of closely before they tune out. The first is that if you really want to try to get better at magic, trying to improve without any kind of rational thinking about odds or probabilities cuts off a huge venue for generating advantage over other players. So this is a tool that's out there that other people use. And also, you know, there's tons of writing about there out there about odds in gaming, about using mathematics in in kind of estimating ways in order to make your game better. And other people are using it. So I think if you kind of pass on that just in general, you're kind of just missing a huge opportunity to learn from a lot of different people who have put effort into developing an entire framework or viewpoint about how randomness works in games and how to not control it, but how to benefit from it or how to use it properly. The second thing is that if you're someone who's having success in magic without thinking about probabilities at all, there's a good chance that you are kind of making decisions intuitively and either already using math without really knowing it. So, you know, you need to to learn the skills to be able to transfer that math. Like Zach said, if you know kind of like what you're supposed to do in Jund, there's probably a good chance that if you understand the math behind that, you can transfer those skills to another deck more easily. That's the first option. The other option is that if you're having success without thinking about this stuff, you're probably developing some bad habits that are leading you to develop a mindset that f favors dis uh, results over decisions. And that's the really dangerous stuff because if you're winning now and then all of a sudden you start losing and you don't understand why, you know, there's you don't have any objective tools to help you kind of retool your game and get back out of your slump. All you can really do is sit there and go, well, they drew better than me. Well, it was just luck that I lost. You know, if if you think about this kind of stuff, sometimes you'll understand a little bit better why a decision you made actually led you down the wrong path. Yeah, and when you start being able to, you know, read some articles on this or you start using some calculators to look at decisions you made or thought about making, that can be a real eye-opener. Absolutely. And, you know, some of these things that we're going to talk about, you know, you'll be like, well, I thought I was making the right decision, but then when I looked at the actual odds of this decision being successful, it was pretty bad. And so keeping those things in mind really, like Dave said, gets you out of perhaps some established bad habits you have and working towards making the right decision more often, which is going to lead to a higher win percentage in the end. Definitely. And I think uh, a really quick way to put this into terms that would be helpful for me pre-episode, maybe some listeners who are in the same boat as me, where imagine you have two cards in your hand and you either can play one and be tapped out or hold up something, right? And you take one move and you go, oh, I flipped the coin and chose the wrong choice. When really it could be deeper than that. It's, well, you know, if you had played the card and not held the removal, you actually had an 80% chance to win as opposed to holding the removal where it's only a 20% chance. So it wasn't a coin flip. You actually were favoring your odds much better by going one way. 
Yeah. And a lot of that is kind of predicated on the next card that you might want to see as a result of whatever sequence and how likely you are to draw the card that you need in order to complete the sequence that you started with one of those choices. So that's where I think talking about this in advance, you have those tools handy so that in the moment you can kind of puzzle that stuff out more quickly. Exactly. The last thing I wanted to say was that one thing that I think kind of inspired me when we started talking about this episode was that, you know, in poker, there's a a kind of culture already of people who have these sort of cheat sheets or memorize the odds of certain situations because pokers is a little bit more reducible as far as the odds go uh, to be able to say, well, there's there's a common situation that I find myself in when I'm playing Texas Hold'em all the time, which is I have two spades. There's two spades after the flop. How likely am I to draw the to get the card that completes my flush? It's about 20%, by the way. Um, how likely is it that a card in one of my whole cards pairs with any of the cards that are on the board? And that's around 25%. So these are things that people memorize over time. And I think what we wanted to do was just see if there were a few of these numbers that we could kind of add in one place so that people could kind of have them handy for reference going forward. The last thing I wanted to mention was a really well-known rule in poker called the rule of two and four that helps you calculate odds in poker on the fly. And that was something that inspired us to look into it as well. This is for calculating the likelihood of you getting one of your outs. In poker, an out is the card that you are trying, or a card that makes your hand a winner, basically. That's what that means. So the cards out of the deck that you want are known as outs, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But in the, with the rule of two and four, it's kind of like a th rule of thumb to help you estimate odds. And what it is is basically you count the number of outs you have, Multiply, multiply that number by two if you've only got one draw left, and by four if you have two draws left. And that gives you a rough approximation of the odds that you're going to get to. And you know, our hope was to try to put together some rules kind of like that as well. And in fact, we're going to talk a little bit about the rule of two and four as, a as it applies to magic a little bit later. So something that's really coming to my mind right now is I'm someone who has played a lot of competitive fighting games in their life. I'm a big Smash Bros. fan personally. And in a game like that, math isn't quite as important. I mean, there's percentages for hitboxes and things like damage dealt, but there's not the random number generation the way is in Magic, right? Where you're not drawing cards and there's not, you know, what am I going to get from the top? So that's a lot more skill-based. We're trying to hone the matchups and know how to get a character in certain spaces where you can spike them or, you know, knock them off the ledge, stuff like that, where it's really metagame knowledge. So stuff like math or, you know, probability generation isn't as important there. But because Magic is really a turn-based game at its core, you need that knowledge of number generation and you need that knowledge of probability because that's going to be the edge. That's going to be the skill that trading would get you in a fighting game. Yeah. And realistically, in Magic, it's both, right? You need the meta knowledge. So the, the meta knowledge is sort of like the uh, implicit knowledge of sort of what you believe your opponent has access to, for example, and the knowledge of your own deck and of probabilities associated with certain situations is sort of the explicit knowledge that can make you good at magic. It's the stuff that you, they're, they're knowable facts, which I think is pretty interesting. So now comes the, the hardest part, which is we're going to throw ourselves on the mercy of the podcast community in this discussion. <laughs> Don't we do that every week? We do every week, but in particular with this one, friends, listeners, Please, please note that we are not mathematicians ourselves. There's a lot of content on the episode that is, we've sourced from other magic writers that we will cite as we work through it as much as we can. Um, 
we're not going to try to get, we're going to try to not get too complex with the proof on some of the points. Although many of these things are numbers that we've run ourselves. So if we have a mistake, we're, we're happy to talk about that on Reddit or to be, you know, to, to see that we've made a mistake, but understand, you know, we're doing our best here. And this, what we really want to make do here is make people understand the types of different situations that they can use probabilistic math to help them evaluate and do yeah. our best to get through the, the actual percentages as best we can. Yeah, super important, Dave. What we should do really quickly, I think, is talk about one of the tools that I think anyone can really learn how to use to help derive and experiment with these scenarios that we'll talk about. Um, I do it a surprising amount of times, and it's uh, this hypergeometric calculator. And so what that really means is it's a calculator that it'll, it'll deduce odds like for subsequent things happening. Like if you had a 53 cards left in your deck and then 52 cards left in your deck, it'll help you do the exact math on the difference between those kind of scenarios. So as it lives on the internet, um, the hypergeometric calculator is basically just like a bunch of form fields that you fill out, and it spits out some basic probabilities for the results that you might want. And so the one that I think most people constantly go to is at the StatTrek website. I'm going to put a link in the show notes for that. And when you look at it, it's not exactly the most easy thing in the universe to understand, but there's really only four fields to enter information and then one or two result fields that you're going to want to know what they mean. And so if you're not looking at this right now, we know it's going to be hard to follow along with, but just keep this in mind uh, for using it later. So the first thing is your population size, which is typically going to be how many cards are left in your deck. So let's just say the most easy example, the turn after your opening hand, you're going to enter 53. The number of successes in population. So that's how many successful hits are left in the deck. So let's say you want to know the odds on drawing just any three damage burn spell in your deck. And you know that there's eight left in the deck. You're going to enter eight as your number of successes in your population. If you say you needed to draw into an Urza's Tower and you had four of those in your deck, that would be four. Real, real quick point here is that one thing that people, I think, when they first look at hypergeometric calculators is they think about it just like, well, I need to draw a lightning bolt or a uh, lava spike, but there's only one field here for me to put uh, successes in. And like in Shane's example, a lot of the power that you can do with this is by recognizing that, you know, you can aggregate the cards in your deck functionally so that you can exceed the number of successes in the population of what you're looking for beyond four or beyond eight or whatever. You know, I do a lot of land math in, in the hypergeometric calculator too, to try to figure out what my odds were for, you know, should I have kept, should I have drawn, should I have opted there, should I have bottomed there, like stuff like that too. Um, I think it's just helpful to remind you that it, we're not just talking about finding a single four of it could be more than that. Exactly. And that's kind of the power of modern and magic in general is that some cards just have redundant effects. So those are going to go into your deck a lot of times and you want to be able to account for that. Yeah. It's almost like it's one of our qualities for a card being sleepable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What much, much more on redundant effects later, by the way. So sample size for our uses is almost always just going to be the number of draws or seen cards. So like a, for a single draw off the top, your normal draw for your turn, the sample size is going to be one. If say you had a faithless looting, that you're casting looking for a particular card, your sample size is going to be two, which is the number of draws you get off Faithless Looting. 
For something like a serum visions that you cast, you might think about the sample size being three because you get a draw off the serum visions and you're looking at two cards off your scries. So those are all kind of things you can think about, like how many cards am I gonna see or be drawing you know, before I actually need this card perhaps. And then we have our number of successes in the sample. So that's the number of hits you need from that sample size we just talked about. So if you just need one card, your sample number of successes is gonna be one. If you needed something like two more burn spells out of your next four draws, your number of successes would be two. Great, so before we go on, I'm gonna really quickly just review what you just said. Okay, so population size is the number of cards that's left in your deck. Let's, let's say that we are gonna look for a lightning bolt that's in our deck, okay, after our initial draw. So in that scenario, population size, the size of your deck would be 53. Number of successes in your population, assuming you didn't draw any in your initial seven, would be four for four lightning bolts that are in your deck. Sample size is we're going to look just at our next draw to see how likely we are to draw a lightning bolt on our next draw. So that means sample size would be one because we're drawing one card. And the number of successes in the sample is how many lightning bolts would we like to get in that sample size? And what we would put in this case is one. So the scenario I just said is, what are the odds of drawing a single lightning bolt from one card off the top of our, our 53 card deck? So after you enter data into these fields, you hit calculate at the bottom, and then you just get a bunch of numbers spat back to you below those fields you just entered into. And you're gonna be like, well, what am I looking at here, right? So the one that almost always matters the most is at the very bottom of the StatTrek calculator. It's cumulative probability of P is X greater than or equal to the number of successes you're looking for. In this case, like the Dave example was one. So X is greater than or equal to one, meaning you drew one or more lightning bolts in your sample. Right. That That's a trick, that, definitely a tricky thing the first time that I use this as well as that I kept trying to figure out what all these different results fields were. And it's really easy to look at the one that is X is equal to one. And that's a very low number quite often. And what you really want is, like Shane said, is X is greater than or equal to one because there are always chances where you're going to draw more than one of the card you're looking for. And those are positive um, successes as well. You want to make sure you count for those. For sure. The number is always delivered as a decimal on StatTrek, oh, yeah. by yes. the way. So just remember when you look at it and it says 0.27, that means that it's a 27% chance. It's kind of like a baseball batting average when you when you see it there. Right. And so someone like me, once again, someone who is maybe a little math adverse and, and thinks, okay, well, I heard all that, but how is this really applicable beyond you know those vague examples? So things like how many lands you run in your deck because you want to see a certain amount of lands by turn X. How many creatures are you going to hit off Coco on turn four and how do you need to run to hit two every time? Things like that come from this calculator. This These equations lead directly to those numbers for deck building. So if you're someone who really likes to brew and really likes to, you know, build from the ground up, this is incredibly helpful for that. Yeah, and we're going to talk about a number of scenarios like those, not those particular two that Zach said. We have our own to talk about that are, you know, who's playing Coco these days, am I right? <laughs> Just my casual friend Adam shuts out. <laughs> but it's true. There are a lot of scenarios that you can sort of puzzle through uh, using this, and we hope to give you some examples of that today. And finally, before we really jump into some numbers and different sub-discussions, we just want to give a big thanks to Frank Karsten once again. 
because some of his work is in here. His work is, of course, a, a big inspiration for this episode and lots of discussion points within this episode. And we just want to say, uh, Frank, we love you. We don't know you, but we love you from afar. Sponsor us, Frank Karsten. Yeah, get at us, Frank. <laughs> okay. So first number I would like to bring to the table here is actually a reprise of the rule that we were talking about above in poker called the rule of two and four. So, you know, we did a little bit of, of experimenting with that, that framework in the context of magic and found that in games of modern, it seems like for the most part, the rule in two of four can actually be pretty useful for estimating odds when you are looking for a certain number of cards or a certain group of cards from, from your deck. Exactly. So it was kind of surprising, but I think the real reason is that the deck size of cards that you have left is actually pretty close in most Magic games and most games of Modern to the number of cards that are left in a poker deck when you're doing these similar calculations. So generally, there's about 47 cards that you would be looking at in a deck of poker cards that are left. I think in Magic, you're probably looking at anywhere from by the time you should be doing um odd calculations on your outs i think that's probably like turn four to turn seven is what you should be thinking and so generally you'll be kind of in that high 40s to mid 40s kind of range so it's a similar kind of amount of cards which i think is really cool so just as a refresher of what the rule of two and four is it's that when you are in a, in a moment where you are trying to figure out how likely you are to draw a card that kind of wins the game for you, let's say, that's called an out. And if you sit down and count the outs that you have in your deck, that is the cards that help you, that will help you win the game, and total those up, if you think you have one more draw, you want to know how soon, how likely you are to draw that within one card, you can multiply the number of outs by two. If you think you're going to have two draws, you can multiply the number of outs by four. And I think that it's it's really cool. You know, it's not 100% accurate, but it's a little bit of quick math that you can do that gives you pretty much the odds that you will draw a lightning bolt off the top, the or not a lightning bolt, a three damage spell off the top on your next turn if you're playing burn so that you know that you're finally going to, you're going to be able to close out the game against your opponent. Or, you know, maybe you really want to draw a creature. And so you think about the number of creatures you have left or, or something like that and kind of do a similar calculation to be able to, to figure, figure out if you can get there. I think that the main reason that we wanted to talk about that again is that, you know, when you are trying to do situational assessment in a game like this, in poker and also in magic, a huge part of making this type of math work for you is making sure you get good at actually counting your outs. So you have to know your deck to be able to do this, right? So know what cards will win with you and be sure to try to include all of the cards that will win for you. Like, don't forget, hey, um, maybe, and this is a really bad example, but you know, if your opponent is at two and you're playing a deck that has lava darts and gut shot and lightning bolt and lava spike, make sure you count the lava spikes, lightning bolts, and lava darts that are left because you can probably cast that for two as well, even though it's not a card that deals two damage on its face. Leave the gut shots out because you probably can't use that. Yeah, I think that gets it to an interesting point, Dave. Is I mean, I don't know how many times I've been playing a deck and you know maybe i do a fetch land or i even cast like a tutor of some kind and i'm looking through my deck and i'm like what do i what should i get out of here like what's what's like the best thing i can get right now and under my nose is a card that's perfect for the situation but i honestly forgot it was in there right. and like you really it just 
it it pays a lot to really remember what you're playing. And I think that's one of the reasons that people do talk about know your deck and be have good reps with your deck is because that comes more naturally. But what Dave's getting at is this is the only way you're going to be successful in using a tool like this is having a better understanding of, you know, what's in there? What I, what can I draw? Like what are the what are the tools in here that get me out of the situation or get me to a win? So let's do a really quick example. Let's say you're stuck on four mana. It's turn six on a deck with 23 lands in it. Sounds a little bit like blue-eye control. Or like Scred right? even. Yeah, or Scred. So you really want to be able to play a five drop on the next turn. Maybe it's a Teferi Hero of Dominaria. Maybe it's a Stormbreath Dragon. So you really want to draw that fifth land in the next turn or two, and you think that's going to let you stabilize. So you're sitting there thinking, what do I need to do to make... What are the odds that I draw this land, or do I need to come up with a different plan, basically? So let's say you haven't drawn any extra cards or Scryd. just keeps it easier. If you have four lands in play and you're just looking for a land in this deck, the number of outs in your deck is 19, right? Because it's 23 lands minus the four that you have in play. Makes sense, right? Right. The number of cards left in your deck in this situation is 47. It's right in the range that we feel like estimating using the rule of two and four should be helpful. So it's really easy. Getting a land the next turn, your probability is 19 times two, which is 38%. And getting a land within one of the next two turns is 19 times four, which is 76%. So the reason that I wanted to use this sample as well, this example as well is to show you these odds are close, but not exact to what the real odds are. So just keep in mind that the rule of two and four is all about estimating things. The real numbers are you're 40% to draw land within one turn and 65% to draw land within two turns. So it's not a perfect method, but it does get you in the ballpark for where you want to be for something you can calculate uh, while you're sitting at the table playing. So I hear you. I understand you. How is knowing that it's 38% applicable to me as a modern player? So I've been in a situation with Scred plenty of times. How is that actionable numbers for me? Or is it just a good rule of thumb and then I get better by knowing that? I think that that here here's what you're often trying to figure out when you're in a situation like this is, do I trade material in my hand right now to survive because I want to do that now? Or do I try to draw into something more powerful that I can do the next turn instead? And so I think that's really the situation that I'm talking about there, where you're trying to figure out, well, do I I block with my, you know, in the case of Scred or something like that, it's like, um, I don't even know what cars are in Scrat anymore, you don't I guess. That. You don't know me that, Dave. No, no. So it's kind of like, do I block and give up one of my creatures, or do I want to take a shot and, and survive one more turn, or do I want to take a shot on drawing a land the next turn when I know that if I don't draw a land the next turn, I'm going to die? Ah, okay. That's that's what the, the decision point is. And there's any number of different ways to think about that. One is, I have a Wrath in my hand, and I have a Path to ex- or in Exile in my hand, but I don't have enough lands to ca- cast the, the Wrath right now. How likely am I to draw the land so that next turn I can cast the Wrath instead of uh, casting the Path to Exile now and cashing out that card in a one-for-one when I could cast a Wrath and get two-for-one or three-for-one or something like that? That's the real kind of situations that, that this type of stuff is important to keep in mind for this, for this particular rule. No, no that, that totally makes sense to me. And I think that that phrasing is really helpful. It's the sort of thing where, oh, well, I hope I get a land. I do run enough, so I'll probably get it, as opposed to, no, I have this percent of chance, so I'm going to bank on this, and I'm going to factor that into my decision as opposed to a gut feeling I have. Yeah, and the sad thing is 
you're you're less than 50% to draw land in this scenario on the next turn, right? So you really have to decide is, can I make it two turns? Because then at least it's two thirds likely to draw to draw land. Right. But, um, you know, it's it's not always, once you actually know the odds, it's not always pretty still. But sometimes it's still a better chance than if you look at, hey, if I spend my path to exile here right now on a card that is not Hogak, mm-hmm. I'm probably going to die five turns from now. Right, to a Hogak. Right. So how how can I maneuver this so that I get the most value out of things? I think this is a tool to help you decide when to play things. I gotcha. Great. So my turn for numbers now. I'm talking about 40%. I'm talking about 65%. And what are these? These are the odds of drawing a card and you open in seven. If you have four copies in the deck, 40%. Or drawing a card and you open in seven if you have eight copies in the deck, 65%. Well, eight copies, that's illegal. You can't do that. Judge. Sustained. <laughs> so you can't have eight copies of a magic card. We know that. But it's redundancy, a point we mentioned earlier, a point we're mentioning consistently and constantly. If you're trying to play a deck with a consistent game plan, maybe Storm, maybe Ad Nausea, maybe other combo decks, the likelihood is that you have multiple cards that do very, very similar things. Yeah, Summoner's Pact versus exactly. the creature itself. Right. So this is why, like I mentioned Storm, this is why Baral is so important there. Because a Goblin, because a Goblin Electromancer is a huge engine for that deck. And then having four additional copies of a Goblin Electromancer is absolutely wild. Yeah, I mean, it took. we've talked about this a bunch of times, but it's the simplest example. Baral, the printing of Baral, turned Storm from a fringy-ish kind of deck that only like really, really good players would try to play into... A format staple for for a year or so it was just one card with a redundant effect that made the deck much more consistent put it all the way forward into tier one right so it goes from 40 percent of having goblin electromancer to 65 percent of having one of those effects so you're you know times 50 percent to have it it's, it's wild a 20 percent boost it's incredible yeah. You know frank karsten wrote about this and he called it um he called about the, this the rule of eight and it's something that he, um, he kind of talked about. I think actually in his most recent Hogak article, it talks about this a little bit. You know, we talk about it during set reviews constantly. And it really is, this is, again, I think this is in Frank's, uh, Mr. Car- actually, I'm going to call him Mr. Carson. It's in Mr. Carson, please. No, sorry, you're right. It's doctor. It's in Dr. Carson's language, which is, it takes a deck from being casual to being competitive. Oh, I love that. Oh, I absolutely love that. TM, not me. <laughs> but- great number to remember when you're when you're building a deck is that it is what what the difference is eight's better than four i've always said that I'll, I'll say that to my grave so next up we have a similar number um to the one we just talked about it's 14.5 percent which is the odds of drawing naturally into a given two card combination of cards you have four of each so this is useful going to be useful in your deck building and you know checking your reality against just what you're feeling. So a ton of decks in Magic are essentially trying to use various combinations of two cards to do something broken. So something maybe built around Devoted Druid and Vizier of Remedies, two cards that I love having on the battlefield at the same time. And a lot of these decks are really powerful and many of them are competitive, but like the math we just put together indicates you're not really particularly likely to draw into those two cards without some help every game. But 
the amount that this happens naturally is pretty surprising. If you're playing a deck like this, you're going to naturally draw into your cards one of between every six or seven times of your you know, in your opening hand. And if you open that up to turn three, when you're on the draw, that's 10 cards you see. That's 26.5%. That's not so bad. But don't forget that sometimes your opponent is going to, you know, they're going to just have it at 14.5%, even when they don't use enablers. And over the course of a large tournament, it's going to happen to you a number of times, almost certainly. But what happens if we're in a scenario that takes advantage of Frank Karsten's rule of eight we're just talking about, where we have eight of each key card instead of four? So some examples more that we just talked about up there is like Dredge, where you kind of need your combo piece, like a Faithless Looting or a Cathartic Reunion, and then your combo piece B is going to be any dredge card. And, you know, even in this case, you know, Stinkweed Dip and Life of the Loam, you're going to have eight of those, but you're also going to have some other dredgers in there too. And something like Electro Balance deck, you might have a spe- any spell without a mana cost, like an Ancestral Vision or a Restore Balance. And then another, your other combo piece is going to be uh, your As Foretold or your Electro Dominance lets you cast those for free. And so Karsten, of course, again, has a mathematical model for those two card combos where there's eight copies of each card. And so, you know, we had 14.5 before with naturally doing that um, with four each, but with eight each, if you keep seven, 26%, if you, and if you're willing to mull, this is where things get interesting, 45.6% to get uh, that two card combo in your hand, mull to five, 60%. Multi four, 70%. So if you're in a, a deck that really wants to go off with a two card combo and you have eight essential v- versions of each of those two cards and you're willing to multi four, you're going to get that 70% of the time. It's not every time, but it's enough to make me happy. It's m- enough to make me and my druid friends happy. <laughs> so I'm just going to do a little refresher on the numbers we just talked about quickly, kind of like to close this segment, because this is about getting key cards out of your deck were the first couple of stats that we looked at here. So again, you're 40% likely to draw a card in your opening seven if you have four copies of it. So that's if you're thinking about things like Ley Lines or, or a Ley Line of the Void or something like that. That's a powerful kind of like common moment where you do that. You're 65% likely to draw it if you have eight copies of that card in your deck, eight functional copies of it. In the case of drawing two cards, it's likely 14.5% to draw one each of a of two sets of four ofs. And if you have eight of each of those cards, it's 26.8%. Uh, so it goes from being one in six or seven to being one in four, which is pretty good. So if you think about all these kind of combo math kind of stats or, or th- uh, benchmarks, I guess. The thing to keep in mind is that almost all of them are less than 50% on seven. So decks that really rely on combination effects either need tutors, they need you know to be willing to maul, or they need alternate game plans that are able to get them to their enabling cards really fast. And you know most people probably knew that, but that's the real reason that you need to be able to to have a bunch of ops in your deck or something like that to be able to get to the cards that you want. It's because in a two card combo scenario, you're almost always less than 50% to get those on the draw. And so uh, you need to increase the consistency of your deck somehow. And that's how they get ended up filled with cantrips. So from here, I wanted to move on to a sort of more general statistic. And this is one is maybe from the, the book of things magic players should not do or should not do unless they're really, really thinking about it. And the statistic I have for this 
percentage I have for this is 36%. And 36% is the odds of drawing a second land on your first draw if you only kept one land. <laughs> it's so tempting. It is so tempting. One of the most tempting things to do in Magic is to keep that hot one lander that has all the cards that you want, <laughs> but it only has one land. How bad can it really be? Surely if I have all of these non-land cards in my hand, my deck owes me getting lands soon, right? right? I bought this action, so the next three draws are going to be lands so I can curve out perfectly and win. Exactly. It's going to be amazing. Well, sorry to break it to you, but it turns out that, you know, if the success rate is around 36%, it turns out that around two-thirds of the time you won't be drawing a second land. Wait, that's the majority of the time, though. Yeah, the more majority of the land, you won't get it. Oh. Yeah. So the model that we use for this model, model is kind of like being very generous for what we we did with hypergeometric calculator with this one. You know, the, the numbers that we put in were a deck, were burn, basically, a deck with 20 lands and 40 non-land cards. So two-thirds is is what happens if you're playing a deck with with 20 lands. You have a 43% chance to draw that second land if you're playing a deck with 24 lands. So if you're playing a deck like Control or something like that, you it's better you know and it's of course even better better if you have a turn one opt or something like that to try to smooth out your your hand but it's still sub 50 percent. yeah and if you're playing a control deck that needs to hit its land drops you're not going to be happy just with that 43 percent chance of only hitting your second land let alone your third and fourth right I, I think a quick way to extrapolate this and make a good rule of thumb is if you're playing a deck that needs to get to a lot of mana don't keep one landers and here's the data to back it up but don't keep one landers i mean there's been so many times that i've kept a one land hand um and it's truly my favorite way to lose a game of magic and i've i've really (laughs) stopped i've stopped doing it unless things are truly dire like you know a really bad mull or it's like a really interesting burn hand that looks like it's going to be better <laughs> than like a six or a five would be. And even that is sketch. You know what I mean? Like you're like, okay, well I have a goblin guide. I got a monster. I mentor. If I, if I draw one more land, then I'm really getting there and maybe I can stabilize with one land for a while, but it's, yeah, you sound, you, yeah. You sound like you're feeding for that land over there. Oh, just man. one more land, just one more land and I'm there, buddy. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things that's super interesting about the difference between mono red Phoenix and burn, right? Is that mono red Phoenix, it has, more, I think, has more one mana spells than Burn does, for one thing. I mean, it has an incredible amount of one mana spells. Maybe it's similar, but Monterey Phoenix gets to run Faithless Looting. And and so, you know, you can have those one land hands with Monterey Phoenix where you're like, wow, I have one mountain, but I have two Faithless Looting somehow. Let's see what happens. I know it takes me off curve, which is not something you really want to do, but if the rest of your hand is good and you can kind of go for it, Maybe give it a try, you know, turn one Swift Spear, turn two Faithless Looting, turn one Soul Scar Mage, turn two Faithless Looting, that kind of thing. Yeah, you're you're in the mid-70s, even on the play, with a t- uh, to get that second land drop with, uh, you know, your Faithless Looting and a couple natural draws. So, great to keep, in, to keep in mind that unless you have a really good plan for it, you know, if you want to know the exact number, it's 36%. If you want the rule of thumb, you're only going to draw that land about a third of the time. So, don't get... You know, don't play the, the, don't do it. I guess that's all we can say. (laughs) All right. So we're talking about drawing lands and seeing lands. But what about things that are almost lands? I'm talking about Simeon Spirit Guide. I'm talking about the rituals. You love those guys. The rituals. I do love them. They're near and dear to my heart. You do. The rituals are the sister band of the faithless. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it, it's it's interesting. So, you know, there are some scenarios in some decks that can cheat around only getting a one-land draw from Simeon Spirit Guide. It's a very reckless thing to do, but let's say that your hand is just gas and you can play a turn one rest in peace against Hogak or something. You just feel really good about it, so you're going to do it. Um, the more powerful scenarios that have this, I think, are Zach's favorite plays, which are how likely am I to turn one Chalice of the Void on one off of Simeon Spirit Guide and Rituals, and how likely am I to play a turn one Blood Moon? Right, so moving into my favorite cards, and I guess what are now my new favorite numbers? <laughs> Likelihood that you're going to be able to have a Chalice of the Void and a way to power it out, rather that be you going second in a Gemstone Cavern and a land, or a Simeon Spirit Guide in a land, that's about 22.6%. That's okay. Not the best. Yeah, I mean, it's close to about one-fourth of the time, right? Yeah, between every four and five games. So yeah. when you're playing a deck like Monterey Prison, Zach, mm-hmm. now knowing how likely this is to happen, and you, you know, do you feel like this is about how often it happens? Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like people, especially for what we're going to get to in a second with the turn one Blood Moon, can remember the times it does happen, and it's, oh, they always have it. They always have the Blood Moon or the Chalice. But it's really not that often. And to be honest, I'm mulliganed into five pretty often in hopes of seeing things like this. Yeah. So you go for it almost every time where you're kind of like, well, I didn't get out of my seven, so I'm going to six. Yeah. I, I mean, definitely in the blind against a deck, if I don't know what my opponent's on, I'm going to want a quick lock piece. And then knowing what they're on, I might, you know, prioritize a Blood Moon or a Chalice depending on what they have. But definitely in general, if I am against an unknown opponent, I want to get something down right away and hopefully cut them off from a big part of their game plan. And that percentage seems like kind of a fair percentage because it requires a lot of deck building. Oh, that, yeah, that is, that is That is compromised if you draw some of these pieces late, like a late Simeon right. Spirit Guide, a late Gemstone Cavern, you know, a late, uh, you know, Ritual. Those aren't things you want to get off the top of your deck. No, absolutely not. And to add to that, Gemstone Cavern is a legendary land. So you have to, when you play one, you got to get rid of the other. So you can do things like tap, play the one, sacrifice the tapped one, and you're not quote-unquote super behind. But anyone who's played with Simeon Spirit Guide knows the pain of hoping for anything else but to drawing a monkey from the top. Yeah, so, I mean, it's Stan's favorite thing, though, because Stan just wants to win with monkey just really wants to win with monkeys. <laughs> I don't think he's ever cast one, though. That's hilarious. I don't know now. if he has either. <laughs> I don't know if he's ever played a deck that has Simeon Spirit Guide in it. Oh, I love that so much. So before we move on from this from this stat, the one thing I want to point out is that this scenario took a kind of different kind of math, not kind of not a different math, but it took a different tool from the hypergeometric calculator than Shane was talking about earlier, because the stat trek calculator can only do a single variable. So it only lets you figure out the likelihood really of drawing one card. And I know that we talked about some combinations above as well. There's another tool out there called Deculator which is uh, deculator.appspot.com. We'll have the link in the show notes. That lets you do scenarios where you can really be prescriptive about the cards that you want to draw and have it be multiple different cards, multiple different amounts, multiple different amounts per card to really test out scenarios and, and see what happens. And so we had to use that tool for this instead because you know we needed to draw up something that said you can have a Chalice of the Void and an SSG or or Gemstone Cavern, plus a land. So we included a land in this one as well. So it's kind of like the whole package of being able to do it. Right, absolutely. 
So another statistic that we use this same dickulator.appspot.com for is a number that is 8.7%. And what is that? That's a likelihood that you're going to be able to play a Blood Moon turn one off of seven, off of seeing seven cards. So this requires a Blood Moon, a Simeon Spirit Guide, or Gemstone Cavern, a Ritual, and a Land. So that is a four-card combo. Yeah, that's incredible to think about draw, drawing a specific four-card combo of different amounts. They're not all four ofs. It's no. a four of, a seven of, a five of, and a 12 of is what those are. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, something Some like Some people that. are running more uh, Blood Moon effects these days. I've seen lists that are running uh, Blood Moon and Magus of the Moon, and of course that changes the numbers a little bit. But typically it's four Blood Moon, Four Simeon Spirit Guide, three Cavern, five Ritual, and a whole bunch of land. Yeah. Yeah, it's also important to mention, kind of like you mentioned before about the mulligans, is that now with the London Mulligan, the 8.7 is just off your raw initial seven, correct? And we're not really able to easily incorporate kind of uh, mulligans with the new London rule, but that percentage is even higher if you're willing to mulligan to it. Right, absolutely. But this is something that's really worth keeping in mind in that this number is sub 10% especially for this specific scenario where you are looking for four cards to ideally keep your opponent off of non-basic lands. You have to think how likely it is that they are going to have basic lands or how likely it is they can blow up the blood moon or things like that. You have to really... So this number is helpful for me because sometimes like I have to get it. I just have to go for it. And then what, you mull the four, spend all four cards, and they have the basic forest? Wow, okay. Well, you should have thought about that. You should have factored that into your decision. So it's easy to have tunnel vision with strategies like this, but it's important to remember that it's not a high chance that you're going to get it. So after a certain point, really consider how much you want to go down on your on your ultimate hand size. Can I ask you something about this too? Does does seeing this number change the way you think about sideboarding into and out of aggressively trying to do a turn one Blood Moon game too? Like, I don't know how often you take Blood Moons out of the deck in subsequent games, but... Yeah, so I I will take them out if I'm on the play as opposed to the draw. And then also against decks that I know will respect it. Sometimes I will take a few out so they still have to respect it, but I don't actually have it, things like that. But what this is really showing me and what I'm going to learn from this right now is that if I, unless I really, really, really need to do it turn one, it might be worth taking out a ritual. It might be worth going down some Simeon Spirit Guides just because unless I am willing to spend a lot of effort for, once again, a sub 10% chance possibility, I wonder how much of how much, how much of my possible sideboard slots are worth that. Yeah. I mean, that's those are numbers you can use, everyone. That's what, we, that's what we're trying to do here today. For the common Blood Moon person, I'm here. All right, let's head over to everyone's favorite. Numbers are 9% and 12%. And what I love nine December twelve percent. Those are my favorite. Oh, how'd you know? Well, Zach, I know you pretty well now, but I don't think you're gonna be happy when you realize what these numbers correspond to. And that is the chance of drawing into natural Tron by turn three on the play, nine percent, or turn three on the draw, twelve percent. So, you know, this is the most fun. But just a reminder to people that drawing into natural Tron is super, super unlikely, right? And so this gets at that kind of counterintuitive strategy, perhaps, of trying to you know w- react to their enablers can really stymie their game plan, right? I mean, I'm not an expert, but maybe consider <laughs> not saving your spell pierces for trying to get car- sneakily get Karn. Use it to get rid of the enablers instead, essentially. 
But a little bit for the Tron players out there, Frank Carson, close personal friend, has done some math on generating that mythical turn three Karn or turn three worm coil engine under the new London Mulligan or newer London, London Mulligan at this point. So in his scenario, he keeps and only keeps if the hand contains at least one of each Tron piece and a payoff card, two Tron pieces, a map and a payoff card, two Tron pieces, a chromatic effect, a Sylvan scrying and the payoff card. So that's, those are pretty darn good Tron hands just to have in your seven, right? So if you keep seven, that's 10%. Go to 6, 18, go to 5, 26, go to 4, 33%. So note that you're adding about 8% to your odds of finding a good Tron hand with each of these mulligans. But what's interesting about the hands that Karsten sculpted here is that they're not just making Tron. They don't, and they don't consider ancient stirrings as well. So your actual odds just to be able to make Tron or to use ancient stirrings to find a threat or another one of your Tron pieces are much higher than these stats. So what's important to do, you know, look at these numbers here and say, okay, with the London Mulligan, more than ever, I need to be willing to mulligan because I can get an insane hand a third of the time if I mold a four, let alone just a good hand that makes Tron or has a chance to make Tron via ancient stirrings. So, you know, just think about that and and keep that in mind when you're keeping a sketchy six. Absolutely. And I think a big takeaway for me for these numbers and how kind of shockingly low they are or not as high as I felt like they were is that they don't always have it. And I mean, going back to the Blood Moon example, they don't always have it. And to think that way is to really cut yourself off a lot, a lot of possibilities and a lot of forward thinking. So if your opponent really needs to have three cards and they're playing something like Expedition Map to get to that other card, maybe blow it up. Or if they're playing a Chromatic Sphere, maybe try to blow it up. Or, for example, if you're playing against me and you see me Ritual on turn one, consider countering that Ritual. So... Because it's not always like, oh, yeah, you know, next turn they're going to have virtual again. They're just going to play it, so why bother? It's very rare that they're going to have the same setup again, and it's worth the tempo gain from disrupting them there. 100%. Agree with that, Zach. Yeah, that's awesome. That's my number. 100%. (laughs) 100%. (laughs) There's one takeaway here. Shane, 100%. Well, so we've been talking a lot about, about a lot of really low numbers. And so I wanted to throw one out there that's actually a pretty high number, and that is 55.9%. That's almost 56%. I know. It's almost 56%. It's more than half. And this number is uh, the likelihood that Burn will have had seven action cards and three lands by its third draw. Give me those stats. Those are good stats. So it's interesting. You know, I was thinking about trying to do some stuff that wasn't based off of opening draws. And just looking at a deck like Burn, you know, you can sort of go really quickly, hey, there's 20 land cards and there's 20 non-land cards. I wonder how often they have seven cards, which I am assuming in this scenario equals 21 damage or maybe 20 damage um, by turn, by its third draw, so that they can kind of be threatening lethal by third or fourth turn. So... It's amazing to think about that this happens more than half the time, that more than half the time burn is going to be threatening lethal by the time it's draw, seen 10 cards. Um, and we haven't even cut unplayable hands out of this yet. 
So if you think about scenarios where you get nine action cards in one land, but keep eight action cards and two lands in the mix, that just it's slightly down to just below 48 to uh, just sorry, just below 50% to 48%. Yeah, and this doesn't even really probably include sort of the repeated damage you can get out of your creatures. And so I mean, like, just looking for seven action cards is even what you necessarily need. You could get by with six. They say modern is a turn four format. And by golly, if burn doesn't seem like a turn four deck these days. Yeah. I mean, I think it has been for a long time, and it just it just is. Of course, this implies no uh, no interaction from the opponent, <laughs> but uh, at the same time, it's kind of like you got to have the stuff to be able to put the pressure on, and sometimes you just do. And so you get a chance to do that more than half the time when you play Burn. So once again, there's two takeaways. Shane's 100%, and you got to have the stuff. Right. <laughs> Perfect. I mean, I guess as a, someone playing against Burn, it's important to keep in mind that they they will be pressuring you consistently and it's not like they're running extra good to be putting that pressure down on you. So if you're playing against burn, you need to have interaction early in the game. You need to keep it up. And I know people know, Hey, I can't keep like low land hands against burn or can't keep stuff where I don't have cheap interaction, but this is just more proof to help kind of add to that. Right. And this is why cards like core firewalker or dragon's claw are so good versus them because they are relying on three damage for this number to be relevant. And when all of a sudden that's doing two damage and possibly you're gaining life as well, that changes that number pretty greatly. And then going back to kind of our, our earlier 2% rule is if they only have, let's say, uh, three you know, shatter effects, they're 6% to draw one of those each turn or even less really. So you know, if you stick a dragon's claw, that's going to live there for a while, most likely. Right, and I'm, I'm honestly going to... My mind just got blown, and I've realized how I've misplayed so many times in my past life right now, where I'm playing Mono Red Prison, and I'm going to put a Chalice, ideally on one against Burn, right? No, Dummy Zach's putting it on two, because I don't want it to get blown up. When really, like Shane just said, it's what, 6% most of the time for them to get those cards that blow it up? So I'm playing around a really low possibility while they're just bolting my face repeatedly. And sticking with our consistency of deck theme, um, one of the ones, this is a little bit of a throwback when, when it's a little bit sentimental to me is 19.3%, which is the likely Real retro number It's <laughs> 19.3% is the likelihood that you get at least one hollow one cast out on turn one. And so it's an oldie, but a goodie, right? So hollow one was briefly considered one of the most powerful yet most random decks in modern and hold up spork and in early 2018 uh you know frank of course ran the numbers to determine how likely it was to get various numbers of hollow ones into play out in the early turns of the game so on turn one it basically was you know 16.6 percent to get one 2.5 percent to get two and 0.2 percent to get three or four of the hollow boys onto the battlefield um, so you basically have a combination of about 19.3% there to have at least one, right? On turn two, you get an additional 16.8% to get a hollow one, 2.7% more likely to get two, and 0.2 again to have three or four. And then the remaining 61% was getting a hollow one onto the battlefield by turn three or later, which these days, uh, a little bit laughable. <laughs> so oh that's not 88 with trample so do you ever think about what before we do this do you ever think about what power and toughness hogak would have to be for it to be okay yeah it's so many things about that card have to change for it not to upset me on a deeply personal level <laughs> i mean i was like what if it was a four four 
I was thinking the other day, what if it was just like another hollow one? But then I remember that you can play it from the graveyard. And I was like, that still seems broken. Right. Someone to me the other day was like, well, you know, come on. Gurmag Angler can be cast in the graveyard and that's fine. And it's like, yeah, sure. Once. Yeah. Yeah. Once. And, and, and then exactly. it doesn't keep coming back. It's wild. So here's what's pretty cool to me is so ultimately you can expect to have a turn two hollow one in about 39% of your games, which is nearly exactly the percent you can expect to have like a particularly powerful four of card in your opening seven. So, you know, it's hollow one kind of like the perfect modern power level deck where like, you know, that 39% is that like maybe a golden rule here or 40%. So let's compare this to Hogak, right? So in a recent article, Carson again reveals Hogak can be cast on turn two, an average of 64.2% on the draw and 50, 54.6% on the play, or a 50, 59.4% on average, which is bonkers good. Also, shout out to our patron and Slack member, Lawson, who guessed that off the cuff and turned out to be exactly right before this article came out. <laughs> so, you know, even removing the card everyone loves to hate, Faithless Looting. The deck can get Hogak out 58.6% of the time versus 59.4. So Faithless Looting is not doing a lot. I'm sorry, Shane. Can you reiterate that point? Because that's blowing my mind, and I think people need to hear that once again. Yeah, so Faithless Looting is not what's, is not what's powering out these turn two Hogaks, right? It's only adding 0.8% to the statistical average of powering one out. But Stitcher Supplier, removing that from mm. the deck gets a turn to Hogak down to a reasonable percentage of 39.3% of the time. The same as a turn to Hollow One. So clearly, y'all, Stitchers needs to go. <laughs> we'll have the very safe and cromulent modern card Hogak here to stay. Right. Mm-hmm. I, one's I love- an artifact creature, 4-4. Four, four. The other one's an 8-8 eight, eight trample. Mm-hmm. There's no difference between the two cards at all. First thing I, I want to say here is thanks again to Frank Karsten for um, allowing us to quote from his article. <laughs> please <laughs> for not go, suing us. Please, please buy cards from Channel Fireball after yeah, this episode. Honestly, yeah. please, <laughs> please give them clicks and go buy some cards from Channel Fireball. Channel Fireball, if you hear this, uh, yeah, uh, get at us. Um, <laughs> the the other thing I was going to say was I love the fact that we're so convinced that a Hogak is going to be banned three days after this episode comes out that we now have, um, we now have the Hogak math as a sub point to hollow one math. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as an example in this, because hollow one coming back, baby. Well, I mean, I think it just sort of stands the reason like what's, what's like a reasonable percentage of the time to have a decent size beater out uh, in a broken way versus what's the real percentage we're seeing of a ridiculous beater with trample right now and that's just kind of comparison to the two decks one that was considered fairly busted for like a good amount of time in hollow one yeah i mean people really do not like playing against decks with that particular mechanic uh i think it's fun but you know always leads to complaining is it that free cards can sometimes be good sometimes exactly moving on to some much happier numbers 21.3 percent and that is likelihood that jun curves out perfectly from turns one to four so we're talking about a one drop on turn one, two drop on turn two, three drop on turn three, and then the ultimate four drop on turn four. Yeah, so this is a weird one to to calculate because what this really was was drawing 11 cards and having one of each of those CMCs and four lands 
in in hand, it doesn't account for sequencing, unfortunately. So there might be some times where you um, there's some hands in this where you get your one drop at the end of that sequence or something like that. This is where the math this is where the math kind of like left us behind. So I wouldn't be surprised if this number is a little bit higher than reality. But um, you know, when Ross was on here the other day, he said when mid range decks curve out, they can be very very powerful and. So before the math train leaves the station, I believe we have one more passenger hopping on board. What is that? Is that a, a giant flaming bird? <laughs> wow, what a great seamless segue. Thank you. Um, so one of the, th the things that we were playing around with, we played around with a lot of different scenarios today, just like trying to figure out odds of different things and just trying to figure out ridiculous things that modern decks could do that we could kind of model or describe through mathematics. And you know, we mostly stuck to prob probability on this episode, but there was one number that I thought was really interesting when I was just kind of penciling out other non-statistic numbers for modern, and that was 25, which is, by my count, the maximum amount of damage that a mono red deck can deal by turn two. That's, That's a big right. number. Turn two, 25 damage. Would well, anyone well, well, like wait. to hear? People start at 20 life, though, Dave. Yes, they do. They start at 20 life, which means that they would die on turn two. So part of what in inspired me to look into this was just recently having a couple of wins with Mono Red Phoenix where I did 12 damage or 15 damage on, on turn two, and that was enough to kill somebody who was aggressively fetching, uh, whether it was Death Shadows deck or whether it was a um, Hogak deck, both of which are kind of just go for, for shock lands. So I sat down and thought, okay, what's the most damage that I could get with a, with a hand in Phoenix? And here is what I think it is, just for fun. It is Mountain, Mountain, Monastery, Swift Spear, Phoenix, Phoenix, Faithless, Faithless. And then the eighth card that you draw has to be a Metamorphose. So the card that you get on your second turn has to be a Metamorphose. So here's the sequence. Turn one, Swift Spear. Attack for one. That's one damage. Turn two, draw a Manamorphose. Play your second mountain. Play a Manamorphose. And here's where things get crazy. You have to draw all of your Manamorphoses here. You go Manamorphose, 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 Manamorphose. Then you go Faithless Looting, Faithless Looting. And what you get off of the Faithless, faithless Lootings are uh, Arclight Phoenixes and... Um, and two gut shots. The last card that you draw off of your Manamorphose sequence also has to be a gut shot. And so what happens then is you can play all four Phoenixes, have uh, you know a zillion triggers on your Monastery Swift Spear, gut shot somebody three times and swing in for 24 damage with a 12-13 Monastery Swift Spear or not 12, 13. It's a 9, 10 Monastery Swift Spear. Got shot someone three times and hit them with four Phoenixes in the air. Pretty reliable. Seems good. Very reliable. <laughs> I'm sure it's the tiniest, tiniest uh, of probability to draw that, but I just thought that was pretty sweet, and someday I hope to have that happen. I have cast four Hollow Ones in one turn before. Oh, my gosh. So I'm, that uh, I'm looking at point two life. Yeah. You have lived the point two <laughs> life. That's right. So I'm looking forward to sometime having um, 25 damage with my Mono Red Phoenix deck. And that is the end of math class. School's out. School's out. School's out for the summer. summer. So 
So hopefully that was kind of an enjoyable, interesting kind of discussion about the way that probability relates to certain scenarios in magic. Hopefully our numbers weren't too far off in practice. Um, if they were, please be kind. We're glad to see corrections. Um, but hopefully mostly what we wanted to do was help people understand the way to approach using tools like uh, the Deculator and the Hypergeometric Calculator and things like that to help make decisions. So now that the math train has left the station, fiery avian in tow, we're going to take a short break. When we return, we're going to have a little bit of a mathematical question in the wind down. Stay with us. So in order to appease the mathgeist, whose energy has directed this episode and haunted all of our spirits for the past week, I thought it'd be fun to answer a question about combos in modern, which are the mathiest of all the archetypes. Patent pending. So, friend of the show and patron Dom asks, in a meta where linear and aggro decks seem to reign supreme, if you had to play one combo deck, what would it be? Oh man, this this is a can of worms about what a combo deck actually is, right? Yeah, aren't all decks in modern combo decks in one form or another, according to everybody? <laughs> I mean, we did. We literally did the stats on the burn combo. Oh, let's not let's not use those words in those in that exact sequence. I comboed together all these lightning bolts to kill you. Yeah. Next. <laughs> no. yeah. What, what what would it be, Zach? What would you play? Be playing? So, if if you pressed me and said, "Hey, you gotta," it has to be Erzathopter or Wurza, as I prefer to call it, right? I mean, the deck is just so consistent. It has, it's so similar to what I like with Mono Red Prison. It's it's like prison-y, but you also have other strategies. So with Mono Red Prison, you're sort of all in on the prison plan and maybe sometimes go fast goblins. But with Urza, it's just you have all these different options you can tutor out with Wur. You have Urza themselves, which can play cards for free from the top of your library. There's just so many different options. And I think this is really where you need to be in modern with a combo deck, in that you're not all in dedicated to one flimsy plan, but you have so many different options if your opponent wants to attack one of your strategies. So you you have the Sword of the Meek, Thopter Foundry. There's just so many different things you can do that are just absolutely wild to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dave, how about you? Um, I think I'm going to keep trying to do 25 damage with my mono red Phoenix deck. Is that, that counts. It's not a combo, combo deck. Right? You don't uh, say that on this podcast. Come on. <laughs> Would you consider that more of a combo deck than say straight up burn? Yeah, I do consider it in that aspect. Yes. It's more of a combo deck than burn is, but I don't, I don't, I don't think it's a combo deck oh, okay. at all. Um, I would, I mean, I don't want to just say me too to what Zach just said, but in my mind right now, you know, I've spent some time at different points in my magic life playing combo decks. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago when Ross was on that I played Prosperity Bloom, like the original combo deck. So I definitely have Oh, that wasn't a lie. Those decks. No, that was not a lie. Oh, okay. I've I played I played Prosperity <laughs> Bloom uh, what? during during the Mirage, I thought you were just Mirage around standard. Around. No. No, I actually did um I got it from friend of the show, Jonathan when we were both in high school and definitely did some time with that. I played Storm and Modern for a while as well, much to my friend's chagrin a few times here. I do think that right now the one that I think is the most interesting is also Urza. I don't really, uh, I've never really enjoyed playing against uh, Ad Nauseam or something like that. I've also never really thought the deck was that great. I mean, I guess if I was going to give a number, a second place, since Zach already talked about um, the the Urza Thopter deck, 
Wurza, please. Wurza, yeah, which was uh, a name that I love as well. I um <laughs> I I guess that I would give Ceramos a try just because I feel like if I'm doing a combo deck, I probably want it to be pretty janky, and I would just love to see kind of like what it's like to cast a quarters shield twenty five times in a game and then grape shot somebody. <laughs> Seems like that can be pretty fun, but I think the the real answer that I have is that I play Wurza. It just seems so good. Urza is an absurd card. It has incredibly powerful effects, and then it also comes with like an eight-eight when you cast it from from this deck, just because of all the all the artifacts that you tend to have in play. Oh, you mean the construct it creates? Yes, the construct is absurd. So, Shane, what do you think? I mean, I play like so many combo esque decks. Like, I play Tron. I play Dredge. I I mean, Devoted Druid is definitely I think a combo yeah. deck. It's not combo-esque. I think it's squarely in the combo camp. Yeah, I mean, there's... The CC, if you will. The, the CC. I think one, to really answer this question, though, like just a straight-up combo deck that I would probably want to play is like Titan Shift or Escape Shift because I just get to sit back. I get to relax. Like like Riley said a few weeks ago, I was like, let the, let the cards come to me, play my game plan, <laughs> just chill out on, on Thursday Night Magic and just in, enjoy chatting with the other players there. Just see what happens, you know? Just just let it happen. Yeah, break out your beach chair, drink with umbrella in one hand, geometric hyperbolic calculator in the other. Yeah, yeah. I'll order my outs. I just know my outs. I got that 2% rule in the back of my head now. <laughs> Life's good. <laughs> Life's a beach, right? It's it's a little bit of math, but all I have to do is multiply things by two. <laughs> Isn't it three? Do Isn't it three? Oh, you mean, oh, there's three three for the Valakit and two for the cards left in my deck. That's right. The easiest math Three we can for do. The Valakut, two for the cards. Oh, Lin Manuel? <laughs> yeah, he's here. He's on the pod. <laughs> All right. That wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you can get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcast, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or really just pick our brains on something in modern, tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you see us on Reddit, Feel free to send us a message there as well. But don't send us your corrections to math. Like anyone's going to try to correct us, Dave. No one ever wants to correct another Magic player. (laughs) No, I have never once been corrected mid-sentence at LGS. That's never happened. Or wanted to correct someone else. Never. (laughs) I mean, we are are really walking into a bear trap this week. I hope that you are all ready for... I mean, our our Reddit thread is going to be on fire, but maybe not for the best. Frank Carson's going to write an article just (laughs) disproving or agreeing (laughs) with the statements we've made, quoting his own articles. Frank Carson's going to write an article. It's called a subpoena. (laughs) Someone's going to come and get us. Comments are disabled for this video. (laughs) We're going to have to demonetize this one. (laughs) Speaking of which, if you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon. (laughs) Joining any tier gets you access to the super cool channel that we're talking about all the time. Plenty of interesting brews, fun pictures of animals, everything you want to see in a magic chat. It's there. So that's patreon.com slash the dive down. As we mentioned at the top, we have some really cool tokens that we're fin- putting the final touches on, putting some neat card backs on, and we'll be printing very shortly. So keep an eye out for that. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting use their music. And until next week, get out there and use a calculator!
Danner, I'm leading this this one, so buckle in and strap up. Are you ready? You bet. <laughs> 